Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Kansas City jazz guitarist Rod Fleeman. He is always a busy cat on the KC scene, whether with Deborah Brown, Brahm at the Majestic, or a part of the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra. He developed a love for jazz while a freshman at Southwest High School growing up in Kansas City, and he would go on to attend the University of Utah and, respectively, the University of Miami. Over the years, he has performed with the best, like Marilyn May, which he currently does, Karen Allison, Jay McShann, Claude Fiddler Williams, and so many others. He's got great tales, and he is a Kansas City institution. Please, dig his stories, get to know him, and dig this interview, my friend. Rod, thanks for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. Sure. So let me go ahead and start off here, kind of at the top, and let me get an idea. You know, you're pretty active, and I, I saw you with the Deborah Brown Quintet the other night. You were with Brom at the Majestic the week before the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra, there's always something going on. So give me kind of an encapsulated look at your Kansas City Jazz activity in life. You know, I, I guess my first professional jazz gig was with uh, Greg Mize Trio. This is back when I was uh, 19 years old, just finished a year of college and and wanted to uh, get some experience playing and just just kind of the right place, right time, like, I met somebody and they, another guitar player and said, let's go down here to this group of really fine guitarists, Rob Wissett, and he'd like to meet you, and great organ trio, Greg Mize. And so uh, we went down, and I couldn't get in because, you know, <laughs> they carded me as a private club. It was back in that, that time period. Kansas was pretty dry, but they did have private clubs. And, and the private clubs kind of became a... a a popular thing because they were able to stay open until three and back in Kansas City, Missouri, that was unheard of. The clubs all closed at one. So I went in and then they just happened to be playing the break song and the guy I was with said, I'll go bring Rob back to meet you. And then Rob came back and offered me the gig well, as much as he could. It was his last night and uh, he was desperate to find somebody to recommend to Greg who was kind of upset that he was leaving to start his own trio and uh so the next thing i know i was playing the next night and it's six nights a week and organ trio 11 till 3 a.m every night and that really kind of helped that really jump-started my my career because i was you know i was forced to you know learn songs on the spot and and uh, greg greg is blind so the first night I said, where's the music? So, there's no music. <laughs> so, so it was really a great, uh, it couldn't have been a better way to be thrown into the call and, and sink or swim kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then from there, I actually, that's where I met uh, Marilyn May. Because a lot of performers that would be in town, when they would get off of work, they'd come over to the Wild Hawker. It became a real spot for musicians. So I met, Milton Betty Abel there, and uh, my uh, teacher had such a great influence on me was John Elliott, like so many people study with John, and he'd come in with his trio when they got off work, and so I was able to, you know, really play for the, the cream of the crop in Kansas City, and got me established, and got me known 
uh, you know, in a great way. From there, uh, uh, I, I eventually went to school at Miami, uh, you know, went to study jazz and had the rec- recommendation of Pat Metheny. And that was great. And came back and, you know, found the, you know, the, the Wild Hawker was long gone and the organ trio thing, it kind of died out at that time. It's come back now, but at the time it was kind of on the skids and, and everything was about electric piano, Fender Rhodes and, and guitar was kind of like the odd man out. So I, I went up playing bass for a couple of years and I was quite busy playing with Gary Sibbles and Paul Smith at the Plaza Three six nights a week. And on the off night, on Monday night, I played with Steve Miller and Julie Turner, um, once again on bass. So I was, I was actually at the Plaza Three seven nights a week. But I was on the wrong instrument. I wasn't on the instrument that I, that I wanted to be on. Yeah. And uh, from that, you know, uh, experience, I met a, a musician that came through town and sat in with us sometimes by the name of Charlie Van Kelly. And when I told him I was really a guitar player, he, he made me promise to go sit in with a jam session and play my guitar. And it was uh, these young guys that had been part of a band called Dry Jack. And they were backing up a saxophone player at the time named Bill Hemmons. And so, you know, he made me promise. And I hadn't literally hadn't touched the guitar in like six months. I'd just been kind of depressed about it. So I went and uh, sat in with him. And it was just, it was the perfect storm. <laughs> I, I, had no, I had no chops and everything we played was fast. And it was either Giant Steps or La Fiesta or, or, or some standard I knew, but it's still like way fast. And I, you know, so it was really, really horrible. And I made the, the wrong impression, but I got kind of angry and, uh, went home and started, you know, really practicing hard. So I'm going, I'm going to go back and show that I'm, I'm a lot better than what I did that day. And, uh, eventually, yeah, that next week rolled around and things went a lot better. And, uh, and we reformed Dry Jack as a four-piece band, and we started playing around Kansas City. Eventually, we got a record deal with Inner City Records in New York, and uh, you know had a had a nice run. We had a couple of albums that came out, and we played New York City uh, fairly often, and uh, traveled some around the country. It was a hard sell. It was kind of a jazz rock fusion band, no vocals and all all in, all original music, so that's a tough sell. But yeah. But eventually uh, my wife uh moved to Connecticut because I was living in New Paltz, New York with with the band. And so I I got I moved in with her in Connecticut and I'd commute for rehearsals and and then when we went on our little tours. Eventually it was it was, you know, difficult because, uh, you know, we, we had, we had the option for a third record, which we recorded, but, uh, Inner City didn't pick it, didn't pick up on it. Eventually the label went, went bankrupt. And, uh, so I made the tough decision to, to leave the band. It was like leaving, leaving a, a brotherhood, you know, it was just a, a difficult thing to do. But, uh, my wife Renee had been offered a job by her the company she used to work for in Kansas City. And my grandmother was getting up there in years, and it just felt like the right thing to do was to come back to Kansas City. And, uh, and so we moved back in, like, 1980 or 81. And 
my my only my only stipulation in all this was I'm not going back to the bass. It's guitar, sink or swim. <laughs> and and I got a you know I came back and I was it was kind of tough because uh, dry jack was a big deal in Kansas City. A lot of musicians felt like you know we had made the big time because we we got on a record label and it was kind of hard to just come back. You know what I mean? Sort of like from being you know. Uh, in that position to sort of like going back to your, you know, it was, it was hard. So I didn't tell yeah. anybody I was back for, for a while. And so I ran into Greg Whitfield at a flea market. Oh, you're in town. What are you? You're just in, in town. I said, well, actually I'm living here. <laughs> so next thing I know, I'm getting a call from Steve Miller, local band, you know, contractor, big band leader. All then he called me up and I said, well, I said, well Steve, I'd, I'd love to work with you, but I don't even own a bass and I'm not going to play bass. It's too hard. And so he agreed to it. So I started working uh, the country clubs and all that. And so the, the 80s were, you know, just about country clubs and bar mitzvahs and shopping malls and spinach festivals. So Steve Cardinus was uh, still living in Kansas City and uh, we were good friends and we, just, we started doing a few gigs together, you know, and uh, and I was, like I say, I was spending most of my time in, you know, one country club after another, uh, and uh, and Steve called up and said, uh, well, I've got us a steady gig. I said, well, that's incredible. That's great. Where is it? I said, Milton's, you know, of course, legendary jazz club in Kansas City, the original one on Main Street. I said, well, that's great. And he said, it's, yeah, it's a Monday night. Oh, that's perfect. I don't usually have anything on Monday night. So, so I, I yeah, just out of curiosity, I said, well, what does it pay? Uh, five bucks a piece. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> some gas money. Yeah. And, uh, but at that point, I, I kind of thought to myself, you know, you know the, the, the union part of me would say, oh, that's wrong. You don't, you don't go and play for, for nothing. But then the, the part of me that said my my artistic soul was 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 at stake here, and I I needed to to get back to the love of of playing. So so we did. We we had a nice run there, and um, that kind of you know, changed my life because you know Steve eventually moved to San Francisco, but I kept playing the gig because Bob Bowman moved back to Kansas City, and uh, so I kept playing at, at Milton's, even though. You know, Steve was gone. And that was Bob Bowman, and and uh, and then this, the, these things started falling into place. Like, you know, just playing with Bob was amazing. He's such a world class bass player, and uh, and then Todd. Well, Danny moved back. Danny Embry, of course. I knew Danny. And we were good friends, and, and our careers had intertwined. Because when I left Greg Mice, he took my place. So, so our careers always kind of intertwined. And uh, so Danny moved back, and I thought, oh, boy, you know, Danny and Bob go way back, played together in California and L.A., and I thought, well, that's that's it for me, you know. And, uh, and you know, it was Bob that got the idea to form the group Innerstring that taught straight, and Danny to uh, have a two-guitar band. And uh, so that was incredible. You know, we did a we had a steady gig at a place called the Tuba on the Gleave Monday night or Tuesday night, and uh, we started to get a following. And uh, one night, um, um, you know, I'd met Bill McLaughlin, the, the conductor 
of the Kansas City Symphony. He was a big jazz fan, and uh, so he had gotten to know Karen Allison, who was living in Kansas City, had moved here, and was performing a lot at her at the Phoenix. And uh, so one night, uh, he was kind of like a conduit for musicians because he he knew all the players. And when she was trying to establish herself and start to work with people, uh, he oftentimes would tell her who the players were, who to, who to call. And so uh, she had been using, I think, had worked with Danny and, and Brian Harmon. And uh, Bill. it was Bill that said, well, you have to check out this Rod Taylor. So she came into uh, uh, Milton's we were playing and asked me if I'd like to work with her. And I said, well, sure, yeah, I'd love to work with you. So, so that started the whole relationship there where I was playing you know, uh, you know, steady Tuesday night with, with Karn at the Phoenix and that led to uh, recordings and then eventually tours around the world. And, and, uh, you know, so all of a sudden the the nineties were like my escape from the country clubs, (laughs) which was just in time because the DJs had taken that stuff over anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, uh, so I, I started to traveling with Karn and, you know, still playing with Inner String, and eventually I met Diane Schur through uh, a tour I was doing with Karn. It was sort of a, a diva tour where I was part of a backup band that, that backed up Olita Adams and Karn and Sarah Gazarik and uh, and Beatles, Diane Schur. And, uh, and at that time, Diane Schur was looking for a guitarist, so I wound up touring with, with her in Europe and Japan and and so I just uh, all of a sudden I was a I was a road warrior for a little bit because I was I do a tour with Karn of Europe, come home and do the laundry, then go back to Europe with with Diane Schur. Sometimes play the same place. Yeah, and that just uh, kind of has continued to today. You know, just uh, getting ready to go to. Uh, I've had a long association with Marilyn May, and uh, um, going to uh, New York with Marilyn in February to play at Dizzy's at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and uh, such a thrill to be part of a, a you know, a, such a legendary performer, and uh, she turns 90 on April 10th, and you never would dream it, <laughs> the way she sings and, and yeah. performs is just uh, phenomenal, so, and then Deborah Brown, I mean, I, I just feel like my career has been kind of linked to, to vocalists, I, I love that, it's just been something that, uh, I feel like I've worked with the best, you know, Deborah Brown, Madeline May, Karen Allison, Diane Schur. Just you know, I mean, it's been it's been something else. I'm going to fill in some holes in your story. There's a lot that we that, that, that you covered there, but I want to fill in some holes and I want to ask you this: Growing up in Kansas City, talk to me about your childhood. What music did you hear in the beginning that really got you going and loving jazz? Well, I'd have to say, you know, it's a uh, Early on, it was just like anybody else. I was just, you know, I was listening to my friend turn me on to WHB, which was playing the top 40. And, of course, I was, you know, just, you know, just uh, the, the, the typical, you know, love the Beatles, you know, grew up on all that stuff. And and it was uh, when I started playing in, in, you know, rock and roll bands, like when I was in, oh, I think like uh, seventh grade, played in my first rock and roll band and and then um 
good friend Chris Emily. We played together in the, that band, and and eventually we we found out that there was this guitar teacher that that everybody wanted to study with because Ed Toller was his name, and uh, he was a he was a white guy, but he you know spite you know where I was like maybe thirteen or something, and uh, and Ed was maybe like nineteen. He was <laughs> super older than us, but he he could play the blues, and he knew all the artists to listen to, and so. I was studying with him, and that's when I, I guess my, you know, that was the revelation was to discover, you know, through Ed, you know, James Brown and B.B. King and uh, artists like that, which, you know, growing up in Kansas City in the in the mid-60s, you know, it was really so divided, so racially divided that, uh, you know, that was like another world to me, you know. And so, uh, so Ed was the one that turned me on. So I, I got my first BB King record, you know. Because I said, "Who who should I listen to first, Ed?" And get some BB King, you know. And so I, my, uh, I went to the local record store, Bernstein Apathy, and and uh, do you have any BB King? Never heard of him. This is before, you know, he became, you know, nationally known, you know, by black and white, you know, not just black audiences, but black and white. So I said to Ed, I said, well, they don't have any BB King at you know, uh, Bernstein. You can't get any BB King there. You, you got to go to Foster's Records Salon. So my mom took me to, to Foster's, and and uh, yeah, it was like wow, every BB King record you'd ever made up to that point, you know. So that was my first introduction to to, to that music that really turned me on, that got me really excited. I was over at Ed's house with with Chris. We went over there and we're going. We're looking through his record collection, and you know, oh, there's Albert Collins. Oh yeah, there's there's BB King. We knew all the names and and all you know the people. Then, well, who's this guy? You know, and he said, oh, he, he's great, but he's jazz. It was Wes Montgomery. It was my first introduction to Wes Montgomery was through, through Ed Tola. and uh, I was in the in high school. I I signed up for the B band because I. My best friend, we didn't have any classes together, so he, he, he recommended that I try to con my way into the band as a drummer. <laughs> I never took drum lessons. And, uh, and that was really horrible. <laughs> you know, the beginning band, which is, is bad enough, and I was the worst one in the, in the whole room. And it was just, it's just a, a happenstance, but it just to change my life was, uh, I'd been demoted from snare drum to uh, to bass drum, and then finally to uh, hand cymbals. And uh, <laughs> I think I had one crash to make in the whole thing, and I blew it. <laughs> then my band instructor, band director, great man, George Alter, said, Freeman, take those home and practice. <laughs> Which got a big laugh out of everybody except me. <laughs> and uh, so I was walking out of the room, and just think about how life changing this was. I was walking out of the room, dejected, and and he said, uh, I, "I said, you know, Mr. Alter, you, you, can't you find a place for a guitar in the marching band? <laughs> I, I've been studying on that. I'm much better on guitar." And he said, "Oh, I need I need a guitar in the marching band, like a hole in the head, you know, <laughs> you know, with the, with the eyebrow arching up, you know, one eyebrow going up." 
And uh, so I was leaving dejected, and he said, uh, he said, wait, what, what kind of guitar do you play? And I said, uh, Gibson, no, no, what style? And even though I was a naive freshman, my mind immediately thought, why is he asking this? You know, yeah. if I tell him the truth that I'm a rock and roller, he's going he's gonna to say figures and their eyebrows going to go up. So I thought, what sounds, what sounds hipper than rock? Jazz. I said, jazz, it just came out of my mouth like, <laughs> like I just I was doing. And he said, well, stick around, you know, and I want you to hear something. So I sat down and, you know, gave up part of my, my lunch period. And these guys came in. They were mostly seniors. Came in with their shiny horns, and they they sit down. They start playing, and literally, it was like a light bulb went on over my head. And I was like, "Oh my God, I've got to get into this band." It was almost like I, I've got to do this for the rest of my life. It almost had that sort of, you know, that whatever you call it, uh, what's the word, uh, revelation or whatever. Uh, yeah, I can't think of the right word, but but uh, you know uh, the problem was I had lied about being a jazz, <laughs> a jazz guitarist. <laughs> so uh, I listened to the band. You know, oh, this is great, this is incredible. And so you know they got done, and he took me back in the office. He showed me some charts, and I looked at all these chords. And oh no, you know what's what's a what's a G M A J seven? You know, oh no, oh no. So he gave me the music to take home, and he wanted me to come in and audition for the stage band. And I had uh, I had a good guitar teacher at the time by the name of Rich Rock, and uh, Rich had, had uh, studied with Don Winslow, who was kind of the, the local legend legend of the time as a jazz guitarist. And poor Rich, he'd been trying to teach me this beautiful you know, chord solo arrangement of Misty that, that Don Winslow had put together. And, you know, it was like trying to get me to do that when I just wanted to learn 96 tears, you know. I, <laughs> it didn't reach to me, you know. I wasn't ready yet, I guess. I called my teacher, Rich, up. I said, Rich, that, that arrangement you're trying to show me on, on Misty, I need to be able to play it by Monday <laughs> as part of my audition. So he was dumbfounded by that. I went in, and I was just all of a sudden... I was on fire to, to learn. Then he got me a jazz guitar court book, you know, and I uh, I guess I just showed enough on, on that audition to make it either that or my, my suspicion is that he was that desperate because he had never, the, the Southwest Stage Band had never had a guitar player. The uh, guitar was some an optional instrument for a big band. It was you know, you had to have a piano player. You had to have a drum and a bass player. Guitar was really, you know, not necessary. But he was desperate because the band was very good and had a shot at at taking the state, you know, award, you know. And uh, But he had no piano player. The rhythm section was drums and bass. Nobody could play chords, you know, for the solos. And so, so that's kind of, I think, what, what kind of led to me getting that opportunity, but that was life-changing because all these guys in the band were, you know, experienced compared to me and, you know, got me, okay, you need to subscribe to Downbeat, okay, check, you know, you, know, you need to listen to this guy, check, you know, <laughs> it was just uh, the beginning of, of my, of my, you know, career in, in music, really.
you've been around the university circuit, University of Utah after high school, and then you went to the University of Miami, and you've taught, yeah. and you played with so many people over your career. You already, you know, Karen Allison, Marilyn May, Jay McShann, Claude Fiddler-Williams. There's a lot of people that you played with. What have you learned through your education and playing with these veterans that have helped you teach? What have they given you? Oh, that, that's a, well, that's two-sided. I mean, you, you, you've got, first off, the, the teaching experience, which is, you know, I, I, to me, I, I always feel like teaching is, you know, I'm teaching myself when I'm teaching somebody because when you have to verbalize something or you need to explain, you need to come up with a concept, it's sort of like you're, you're kind of inspiring yourself or you're, you're teaching yourself. So I've learned a lot from my students. I've learned a lot from just the process of teaching and, uh, and it's, uh, it's really, Invaluable, and of course, you know, the better the student, the, the more the more inspired you are, and uh, the more the more you get from it. Of course, but yet, as I mentioned, my, my the first really important teacher was 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 John Elliott, who uh, taught jazz theory and jazz piano, and everybody everybody took with John. He was kind of kind of known as the the the, the jazz guru of the of the Midwest. And uh, Pat Metheny studied with him, Danny, everybody of that time period. And uh, so John was incredible at, uh, you know, getting you to be able to think songs in, in all 12 keys, you know, uh, which, of course, that became real valuable for me later on because you're working with vocalists and they're never singing it in the keys that you're used to, you know. So John was a huge influence on, on all of us. Speaking of of Claude Williams and Jay McShann, I mean that was I, that was the you know one of the highlights of my life was be able to to play and do some traveling with them and and uh, I mean they were they were living Kansas City jazz history. It was like not not just reading about them in a book or listening to them on a record, but interacting with them and playing a gig with them was just you know totally amazing. It just it felt like you were getting that that lineage, you know. You were getting it firsthand, and I should mention too, even in the even in the country club years in the eighties, Kansas City's version of those gigs was so much better than when I was going to school in Miami. You know, uh, there wasn't a, a lick of jazz to be found on those typical uh, country club gigs in that part of the world, but. It, in Kansas City, because I think we had that history with Jay McShann and many of the people that I played for in those country clubs had grown up listening to Kansas City jazz. So there was a there was a scene in Kansas City that was different than other cities, you know, even in the private country club world. And so I played those gigs, and even though I, I wasn't, you know, officially playing a jazz gig, I, my God, you know, the band would be, you know, uh, Carmel Jones on trumpet. You know, <laughs> you know, Herman Bell on saxophone. Herman did a lot of traveling with uh, Clark Carey. Of course, Carmel was, you know, was with Horace Silver's band for on Song for My Father and legendary jazz trumpet player that wound up coming back to Kansas City. So even in, in those settings, I, I felt like I was learning. I was learning something and uh, and experiencing Kansas City jazz firsthand. 
yeah, I, I can't say enough about that because, you know, the, the energy that Claude brought to the performance was just like, no, okay, that's just, that's another level there. <laughs> that's another gear. I'm still looking for that gear. You know, up to this point, you've left Kansas City, you've come back, you're a staple on the scene. What do you like best about Kansas City? Well, like I say, you know, uh, from experiencing those kind of gigs in Miami and that kind of mentality that, you know, you just, there's no hint of jazz. Yeah, it just, you know, I felt like, okay, there's something about Kansas City that even though, you know, the 1930s are well past us, the, the, the real glory years of, uh, you know, Boss Tom and, and, and Count Basie being a local band and, and, uh, you know, those, those days are gone, but it's still there. You know, it's like the influence that it's had is, has been felt for, for decades, you know? So I think, I think Kansas City is a very strong jazz town. And it's, you know, it's had ups and downs, you know, some, some periods where it weren't so strong, but, uh, but I'd say, you know, it's, uh, with what's going on right now with the, the Green Lady Lounge and, you know, jazz seven nights a week at, at Chaz at the Raphael Hotel and, you know, the Majestic Sick House. There's so much live music going on here right now that, uh, if I if I hear about a, a young player that's thinking about leaving, I think to myself, well, why? <laughs> you know, you've got it pretty good here. It's an easy city to live in, you know, to, to commute and drive, get around town. is Usually I leave about 45 minutes before gig time, you know. It's not a problem, you know. So that and the the history, you know, the, the, the club scene we have, I think, think one of the best things that happened was when the, UMKC brought in Bobby Watson, the head of the jazz program. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, no, that's going to be the worst thing that can happen because you're going to have all these young jazz players and they're going to want to play just like I, I worked for $5. <laughs> they're going to want to play somewhere. You know, the scene is going to get killed. And actually the opposite has happened. You know, the, the, the young players have brought in a lot of vibrancy and life to everything. And uh, the game is changing, in my opinion. You know, uh, there was a time when, you know, if you if you could play, you know, if you were like a, a Pat Metheny or or Danny Embry, and Rob Woodson, you, you you had to get out of town. It was time for you to go, and uh, because you you know, Kansas City was you're not going to you're, you're not going to grow, you're not going to get opportunities. You know. And that was the case, but I, I just don't think that's true anymore. You know, I think the world has shrunk, and the, the the social media, Facebook and YouTube, has you know, uh, Herman Mahari. He's a Kansas City guy. He's still a Kansas City guy, but he he's going around the world and playing in Paris and Europe, and he's you know, he's being he's being able to do something, and you know, live a lot cheaper. You know, live in a nice city. In my opinion, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Go to New York and, and scuffle like crazy and pay way too much money to live. Yeah, but I think these opportunities are now presenting themselves. You don't have to live in New York. You don't have to live in L.A. And if a young guy says, I'm going to move to New York, why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, you know, Herman goes to play. He plays New York a lot. And, uh, Marilyn lives in Kansas City, but she's in New York more than 
Kansas City. You know, she's, she's there all the time performing. So, so I don't know, but that's uh, that's my opinion. That we've just got this incredible scene here, and it's, it's doing very well. And so I'm, I'm very I'm very proud of the city. I'm very proud of the, the heritage we have. Right on. Let me ask you this. As you reflect on your career right now, you're you're still as busy as ever. You've had a lot happen. Do you feel good about your career? I do. I do. I, I feel like um, it's exactly what I wanted to do. I've, I've uh, been able to, you know, travel the world and, you know, perform with some great musicians uh, from all over, you know, work with incredible performers. You know, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of what I'm, I think what I'm born to do and what I feel like I'm uh, best at doing is, is being a side man. I think that's my, that's, you know, I have no, no, uh, qualms about that, that, uh, that my, my specialty has been able to go in and, and, and work with people and hopefully make them sound better, you know, hopefully bring some positive stuff to the, to the gig. And that's why I think I've always enjoyed working with vocalists. I don't have to be center stage, you know, but I, but I love that, that role, you know, and of uh, being a side man. And, uh, you know, some people are, are born to be leaders and some people are <laughs> born to be, you know, supporters. And, and, uh, that's kind of, so I really feel like I've, I've done what I, what I want to do. Yeah. You've been a part of a lot of performances that a lot of people have remembered. They've been in the audience. They've seen you up there on stage. What performances, jazz specifically, have you seen that have made a really huge impression on you? Live jazz performances. You know, the legends, seeing the, the legends uh, play and getting to work with, with you know, getting to work with Clark Terry, you know, hearing the Basie band when Count Basie was still alive, come and play in Kansas City, you know. Uh, incredible, you know, seeing Freddie Green play. This guy. <laughs> uh, uh, but I can't say... Oh, there's so many. I mean, uh, uh, seeing Jim Hall, you know, play. And actually, I, I, I got to see Wes Montgomery play uh, before he passed away. He, he came to Kansas City and he played at the Kansas City Jazz Jazz Festival. And that was just, Wes was my, one of my very first, you know, jazz guitar heroes that, that, that I really, I really gravitated to, to him so, so much. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it, it you know, I've been a, a huge Pat Metheny fan. I've seen Pat play in a variety of settings with the, you know, the trios and, and then the Pat Metheny group. And and it's been fun to to watch his career. I think the first time I heard him, he was he was 15 years old doing a trio gig at a restaurant. And <laughs> so being able to watch his career from, from the very beginning has been a, has been a highlight for me. Seeing John Schofield live, he's one of my favorite guitar players too. Just saw Steve Cardenas play, came through town and played at the Black Dolphin, and and uh, he's he's just an amazing guy. Yeah, I'd say that's some of the highlights of people that I've seen and followed closely. And uh, you know, uh, and of course, you know, aforementioned working with Jay McShann and, and Claude, you know, just uh, uh, you know, true Kansas City jazz, you know, true legends of of our, our town. Absolutely. So let me ask you quite simply, why do you love jazz? Uh, 
that's you know I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty hard to <laughs> say. I think it, that day uh, I heard the the Southwest High School stage band play. It was just it was love at first sound. You know, it was just it, just, it connected with me. It resonated with me. It's the the, the freedom, it's the freedom of expression um, to be able to to improvise. I was really scared to death of it when I started because I had no idea how, how they do that. <laughs> but I, I love the, 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 the spontaneity of it, of, of it and the freedom. And, uh, my dad loved jazz. Although my parents got divorced when I was pretty young, I still have memories of my dad playing jazz records and he played a little bit of boogie woogie piano. And, and especially he, uh, you know, I'd have a night where, you know, he'd have, what, custody, custody night or whatever. Uh, oftentimes, you know, it was to, to go with him. He was a lifelong barbershop singer. And so I'd go and go to the, the rehearsals and, you know, sing with the barbershop chorus, men's chorus. So I think, uh, I think my love of harmony kind of came from him. We'd be in there singing and, you know, They'd hit a chord and really be on with the intonation, and my dad would hear some overtone on the ceiling in the corner of the of the room we were in, and he'd say, "Do you hear that? Do you hear that? <laughs> you hear that note up there?" You know, and he'd, he'd swipe to his arm and he'd say, "Bumps," you know, talk about goosebumps. So I think I got I got a, the, the love of harmony from from my dad, and of course jazz. It's, it's a combination of this these glorious rhythms and incredible harmonies and it's, you can't point to one thing for me i can't point to one thing but it's a it's a combination of of all those those elements of surprise you know yeah surprise whether it's the way it's phrased the rhythm is phrased or surprise in terms of like oh you reharmonized that well i didn't i didn't see that coming yeah you know it's uh yeah it's it's yeah it's incredible What's the future look like for you? Is it business as usual? Are there recordings, anything coming up? What What do you see your life unfolding jazz-wise here in, say, you know, the next year, the next coming years? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of open to, to the possibilities. Um, you know, I, I would love to, I'd sure love to work with Deborah Brown more. I think she's, you know, one of the most incredible vocalists, you know. You know, it's great. Great working uh, too. I just uh, just was on Karen Allison's uh, latest recording. Did a recording back in December. Hasn't been released yet, but I'm excited about that. And, and uh, it's all original music, so it's a new thing for Karn to do that kind of project. And uh, so I'm hoping that to, to to get to uh, you know do some some more traveling with her. And she's she's incredible. She's just you know, like I say, I've, I've just been able to work with the best. So it's, I just want to keep doing that. You know, uh, I hope I hope Marilyn keeps rolling right past the hundred. <laughs> keeps yeah. doing what she's doing. So I, I think it's just for me, it's just it's just more of the same. You know, just just continuing the variety and uh, the stuff I'm doing. Uh, yeah, just uh, just more of the same. I do think that the I think the business has changed remarkably, and I, you know, I think it's it's sometimes hard when you when you come up in that whole era of like 
okay, so you know, you make a record and people buy it, and then that, then you get some more money and you make another record and people buy it, and it's so different now, uh, you know, with with uh, with with artists. But I think the, the newer artists, you know, especially, are, are they're so connected to social media and YouTube that rather than rather than discouraging, you know, so so to speak, giving the music away. I think they've, they've used YouTube to build their career. And uh, that's what I, I, I noticed, the big change that's occurring. Uh, do you know uh, who Jacob Collier is? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, to, to me, like, that, there's, the, there's the poster child for the way things are now. And that he, I, I, well, once again, I, you, know, you learn from your students. One of my students at UMKC, you know, we, we were, we were you know, doing a lesson and, he pulled up Jacob Collier on his phone, and I think it's like he was maybe 17 at the time, and did some really wild arrangement of a song with, you know, doing all the vocal parts and playing incredible piano, playing incredible bass. Like, who is this guy, you know? <laughs> How can anybody have this much talent, you know? And uh, and he just rolled those things out routinely. You know, you, you couldn't wait to you put, put another posting on. And... and uh, and so he went, you know, virtually from doing that for about three years, something, three or three or four years, to now he just he just went straight from basically his his parents out and posting his YouTube to touring the world, you know, just yeah, none of the usual, you know, business as usual, like Karen Allison moves to Kansas City, she pays her dues and works in the Phoenix, you know, nightclub and. You know, she pays her dues and scratches and claws, you know, like what we had to do. And it's, it's different now. I mean, it's like YouTube is just, you know, uh, social media just changed the whole course. Yeah. It's amazing. It's just, to me, it's, absolutely. Like, it's uh, absolutely stunning that, uh, so I, I think that's the, to me, um, getting more of a YouTube presence would be good for me. I'd like to do that if it's developed. That I'd like to uh, maybe develop some online teaching, you know. Um, so people that know me know that I'm kind of <laughs> I'm a little tech, technology impaired when it comes to a lot of that stuff. But that's one area that I think is just uh, it's 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 so important nowadays. I'm going to save the hardest one for last for you, and I'm going to ask you this: Everyone has a version of you your family, your friends, your fans, but when you wake up, who who's Rod? Who are you? What's your perception of who you are? Well, that's a, it's kind of a tough one. <laughs> that is tough. <laughs> that one. Yeah. Uh, well, I, 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 love, I love people. I love interacting with people. Um, I love, uh, you know, playing music, and it's all kind of, to me, it's all kind of about the same thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, you're, whether you're having a conversation with somebody at, uh, Trader Joe's or you're, or you're playing on a bandstand, either way it's a conversation, you know. And, uh, so I say I just, I just, uh, I just enjoy, enjoy that, you know. Uh, other than that, I really don't know. <laughs> That's cool. That's that's a good answer right there. 
I think that's uh I think that kind of wraps everything up for what I wanted to talk to you about. Rod, thank you for the music. Thank you for the live performances, giving me some of your time today. I really appreciate it. Yo, you bet, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Kansas City and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Rod for his cool, his music, and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.